Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy, madness, and chaos. In the midst of a deadly global pandemic, on November 3rd, the United States will go to the polls for an era-defining election. In the coming weeks on Intelligence Squared, we'll be speaking to world-leading experts about what's at stake in Biden versus Trump. The most important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election of our times. Probably one of the most important elections of our lifetime. This is the most important election in our lifetime. Politicians say every time, oh, this is the most important election. This one's really that important. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this election special on Intelligence Squared. Now, just before the votes started coming in on November 3rd, we released an episode looking at key battleground states, how the candidates had performed in the final days, and what was at stake for the country as a whole. Well, today it's November 5th, almost 48 hours later, and we still do not have a decisive winner. So in this episode, we sought to break down how the candidates have performed in the key states, what we can expect to unfold in the coming days and weeks, and what this election will mean for the country and the world as a whole. It's a really fascinating conversation, and we were joined by Danielle Plecka, the senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, who hosts an excellent podcast called What the Hell is Going On, a very apt name for this current moment, as well as Josh Lancy, the Washington bureau chief of the Sunday Times. And the episode was hosted by Lindy Yu, the economist and broadcaster. It's a great sense maker of this febrile election, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared election special with me, Linda Yu. We're recording on November the 5th, just two days after the 2020 US election. It looks like there's a record turnout by voters and an unprecedented over 100 million people cast their ballots early. Votes are still being counted in key states as we speak. And to help us understand what the last 48 hours mean and what to expect in the coming days, I'm delighted to introduce our guest today. Danielle Pletka, she's a former vice president and current senior fellow in foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She teaches U.S. Middle East policy at Georgetown University and is a regular contributor to NBC News's Meet the Press. We're also joined by Josh Clancy, Washington Bureau Chief of the Sunday Times and previously the paper's New York correspondent, where he wrote an entertaining weekly column for the Sunday oh. Times magazine. Delighted. That's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> I think, that, isn't that the sentiment for the entire election? <laughs> well, quite, yeah. Debate, debatable is probably the word of the day, yeah. Yeah, and uncertainty. So, as of today, we have news outlets um, which are putting uh, Joe Biden ahead on around 264 electoral college votes and Trump on around 214, but... There are lawsuits and challenges, including whether it's too early to call some of the swing states. So here is the big question. Uh, When do you think we'll know who the next U.S. president uh, will be? Danielle, you first. Oh, geez. Thanks for throwing me under the bus. (laughs) 
Um, look, I don't know. Um, I, I think there are a couple of there are a couple of shoes to drop for for all of us. The first is whether uh, Arizona is going to go the president's way. Looking obsessively at the numbers and pretending to have any inside knowledge <laughs> is, is is probably puts me makes me have something in common with uh, with lots and lots of Americans, but uh, doesn't make me any more knowledgeable. It looks like it looks like Donald Trump is on track, I think, to to get Arizona. The real question then for him will end up being Pennsylvania. Um, and he's ahead, but you know Arizona is not going to make any announcements before Thursday night. Um, Pennsylvania has been unbelievably slow. I mean, you know, everybody's sort of focused on the fact that we had all these early votes cast, but what's staggering is how long it's taken to actually count these votes. And then, of course, as you rightly note, there are these, these challenges, although I suspect the challenges are actually going to be a little bit of a, of a, of a you know, a, a flat uh, effort because you need a basis to challenge all of these, uh, all of these election results. And while in Wisconsin, the president can ask for a recount, in other states, it's unclear what his basis for challenging is. So, so short story long, I don't think we're going to know at least till Friday, um, but maybe not even then. Thank you. Josh, same question to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I broadly agree. I think it's looking like a real toss-up in Arizona, um, which does then bring us to Pennsylvania. And obviously, and Georgia is, is still in play too. And actually, the, the remaining, whatever it is, 50,000 votes in Georgia, which are being counted with astonishing uh, lack of alacrity, shall we say. Um, I think my, my friend compared it to an Indian wedding reception in its, uh, <laughs> in its pacing. Um, so Georgia's still in play. Pennsylvania Democrats are confident about, I mean, obviously everyone's trying to project confidence at the moment, but they do think that those votes that remain are breaking very heavily for them. It's the mail-in ballots, which we would expect to vote to break Democratic. Um, and they think Pennsylvania will end up being actually quite comprehensive victory, um, more so than, say, Wisconsin. Um, but it's like pulling teeth at the moment. We just have to wait for them to count it. And every hour that goes by uh, becomes a little bit more fraught. And, you know, the Trump campaign is obviously launching these lawsuits. And I agree with um, Danielle that I think some of them are, are possibly a little bit frivolous. Um, but they're also hosting press conferences. You have Trump on Twitter saying, stop the count. Um, so this is a little bit of a somewhat volatile situation. Uh, fortunately, we haven't seen any major unrest or discord at the moment. But uh, yeah, Democrats do seem confident about Pennsylvania. And if they get Pennsylvania comfortably, that's the ball game. But unfortunately, we have to all sort of sit here in purgatory until, until, the, until the count is done. All right, we're going to hold you to, to this Friday um, announcement. <laughs> so if we, <laughs> um, if we don't find out until the weekend, um, you know, we're going to come back to you. <laughs> well, the, the important thing for me is that I need to know by the time I write my copy for Sunday's newspaper. So it, it has to be decided by Saturday afternoon. I think that has to be the determining factor. I think that's what's good. That's yes. what's some, 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 right, that comes a point. Pretty much yeah. every American yeah. election yeah. so far. <laughs> Um, I guess the next question I'd like to get your take on is, has the election played out like you thought, um, or have the results um, surprised you, I mean, including the congressional races, obviously, and um, the Senate was at one point, I think, um, very much being watched as well. So, uh, Danielle, you first. Has the election surprised me? Um, 
It doesn't surprise me that Donald Trump did much better than people expected. I mean, you know, again, the problem for anybody uh, is that is that you want to you want to believe the data that you see. The problem is that polling isn't really data, right? It's it's because you don't actually know what the inputs are, and that's that's the problem. And so, you know, one thing I think we can be absolutely certain walking out of this election with is that the biggest losers in America are pollsters. Not the Republicans, not the Democrats, but these pollsters who, who you know, imbue the public with this sort of superior sense that things are going to happen a particular way. And, and they're just wrong. They're wrong. And it's, and, it, and it's actually a little bit malign. Um, so am I surprised? I'm surprised that Susan Collins in Maine pulled it out. But, you know, I, that's terrific. Because she's a she's a good senator, and she's a moderate, and she deserved to be reelected. So um, am I surprised that, that the Republicans are going to keep the majority in the Senate, which I think is likely to be the case? Um, a little, yeah, actually, because that was great. Um, but it was a really rough election for Republicans, so it's a big achievement. Am I surprised about the results for Donald Trump? Again, same thing, you know, um, a little bit. But uh, the problem for us in America now is that we can't be honest about what we think. If you're a conservative, you're not allowed to say. So what you have is a lot of people who are very vocally anti-Republican, and there's this whole sort of shadow group of people who either Republicans or conservatives or just Trump voters who you don't hear from. Uh, I think everybody's I think everybody's a little bit surprised. But what's the most surprising thing? Not the Senate, not how it went in any of these states. What the most surprising thing is that for four years, Republicans have been labeled racist. Donald Trump has been labeled a hater. And, and he's contributed a great deal to those labels. This isn't something that came out of the blue to, to, to smear him. He has helped in that regard. And yet his performance with minorities is nothing short for a Republican and particularly for a man of Donald Trump's ilk. His performance is nothing short of spectacular and a great, great opportunity for the, the right to actually understand that its coalition isn't based on color. It is, it is based much more on ideas. Rather a longer answer than you wanted. Sorry. <laughs> no, interesting stuff. I think once we see how the various um, votes in terms of demographics um, play out, I think there's quite a few trends there, you know, that we'll need to, to keep an eye on. Um, but Josh, same question uh, to you. You know, um, have the results surprised you? Has it played out like you thought? Um, and of course, you know, beyond the presidency, anything around the Congress and Senate? Mm. This is the first American election I've properly covered. And so it was an interesting experience in that I did a lot of reporting on the ground, um, which was somewhat hazardous in COVID terms, but I sort of went for it anyway. And a lot of American reporters didn't. A lot of the American news organizations actually were, were pretty cautious around that. And there was a kind of some, something of a politicization around it too. And the things I kept seeing on the ground were really significant enthusiasm for Trump. I was out with voters for Trump in Wisconsin. I was at car rallies for Trump with the Cubans in Miami. And I kept seeing like big, big numbers and big passion for Trump. And, and then I would come back to DC and I'd look at the polls and I would talk to the pollsters and they would tell me, that's lovely, ain't gonna matter. And it may not, but it was there and it was underreported. Um, and, and it seems like the media and the pollsters made a lot of the same mistakes that they made in 2016, despite the fact that 
there was supposed to be a great post-mortem after 2016 and everyone sort of walked around with kind of hair shirts for six months. Um, so to my mind, I wasn't that surprised. I know it's easy to say that in hindsight, but I did think Trump would outperform his polls. I did think I, I was going to his rallies in the last couple of weeks. They were impressive. I mean, they were energetic. He was on, he was on comic form. He had great um, charisma. There were decent numbers there. And Biden was doing nothing. I mean, he was doing these kind of stage speeches. And I understand that he wanted to message about the gravity of the pandemic, and, and he sh- he's right to do so. But just in terms of the, 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 pa- the power of the campaign, uh, I think it did make a difference for Trump. And I do think the pollsters are just bad at reaching media skeptic, rural, white, conservative voters. I just don't think they're waiting. Have, it's not just their education. They're just not reaching them. I don't think these people want to speak to pollsters from Siena College or Monmouth College or wherever it is. Um, so I wasn't shocked. Um, a gun to my head before the election, I said Biden close. And that is probably where we're going to end up. Um, and, uh, you know, I definitely wasn't surprised by Florida. I really always thought Trump would have been Florida. Just from when I went down there and saw the way uh, Latinos in Miami were feeling about socialism. And I don't think the Democrats realized how damaging the kind of Bernie AOC self-proclaimed socialist movement had been in certain quarters. It actually did well for them in other quarters. And actually, we shouldn't forget that they did very well with Latinos in Arizona, for example. They've turned good numbers out there. Um, So, yeah, not surprised. And the Senate seems really kind of, you know, I think it's important to realize that Joe Biden didn't have coattails. He was not a someone who built a real movement. People voted for him primarily because they wanted to get rid of Trump. And so he didn't create this kind of mass momentum behind the party and, and bring other candidates along with him. So it's a pretty, uh, if he does win, you know, he doesn't have a great mandate, he doesn't have the Senate. Uh, it's going to be a pretty, pretty tough four years for him, I think. Danielle, could President Trump still win the election, um, given where we stand now? And if so, what is his path to victory? <sighs> so, um, could he still win the election? Uh, yes. Arizona has to turn around uh, for him. Uh, I do think that's going to happen. Um, I agree that um, I sort of I agree with with uh, with Josh that um, that the Democrats are confident about Pennsylvania. Honestly, I just I just don't know. Um, and you know, my pre-election skepticism has only been enhanced because uh, because you know it's hard to believe it's hard to believe the press, it's hard to believe the reporting, and it's hard to know. And, uh, and, you know, everybody keeps saying, well, let every vote count. And the answer is yes, every vote has to count. If he wins Arizona and Pennsylvania, then he's got a path. Um, if he doesn't, then he doesn't. Because uh, Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, has warned that he's not going to get the votes. He's, he, it's only 20,000 in Wisconsin, but that he's not going to get the votes he needs from a recount. I mean, look, you know, Anything can happen. And what is what is frankly weirder to me is this trend of the last 20 years for these split decision elections that are, you know, 5,000 votes, 1,000 votes, 10,000 votes apart in a country the size of America. And yes, of course, we're only going on a state by state basis. But even then, we're a bloody big country. You know, it is it is is quite remarkable. Um, so you know that's his path forward it i think it's i think it's doubtful um but (laughs) 
But, uh, you know, it's 2020, you know, I mean, a meteorite could hit all of us. And frankly, it wouldn't be that surprising. 2020 has been some year. Just very quickly, Josh, do you think Trump could still win the election? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the betting markets now, and, and the, the, there's a lot of data they have to make there. It's not just polling they're looking at anymore. Uh, he's, I think it's about 85% Biden. And I put myself around there as well. Um there is a very narrow path for Trump here. I don't quite see it, 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 all the votes that come in in Pennsylvania. It would have to utterly defy expectations um, in terms of their partisan leanings. Uh, I think, yeah, Arizona is hopeful for him, but I don't think Pennsylvania is that hopeful for him. And therefore, neither is the whole ball game. So uh, we have seen miracles of Trump. And, you know, they... It's possible Pennsylvania is so close. There is a lawsuit in Pennsylvania about um, votes that come in postmarked after the election day itself that went to the Supreme Court and got stayed and could go back to the Supreme Court. If it's really, 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 really close and those votes matter, the newly uh, enhanced conservative majority on the Supreme Court could theoretically rule against those ballots now. Uh, it was 4-4 previously. So, like, there are glimmers of light if you're Trump and the Trump campaign, but it's glimmers, I would say. It's a long shot. And Danielle, um, I think you mentioned before that the legal challenges may not themselves um, amount to uh, a significant uh, impact. But, you know, Josh just mentioned this could go to the Supreme Court. Um, do you think, you know, what would your take on the legal challenge in the Supreme Court, which, of course, we saw um, in uh, Bush versus Gore? Right. So the, the, the Pennsylvania situation is different. And here, I'm not a lawyer. I'm parroting a very good piece by Andy McCarthy, who is a lawyer, um, over at National Review, who just really laid out um, exactly what the Supreme Court situation is. So it's important for people to understand. There's one question about a legal challenge to the vote. That's something that is a post-election filing about the propriety of the electoral process, of the, of the count, of the legitimacy of the count, or in the case of a very close race, a recount. That's one thing, okay? And that's actually, you know, that's not based on what we all think on Twitter or, you know, what you heard from your neighbor who read it down the street. You know, it, it's not that, right? And so much of our politics is that. But this is, this requires actual legal grounds in order to challenge and lawyers and judges are actually serious people. So that's one question. On the Supreme Court question, which Josh mentions, which is, is rather complex, um, there you have a situation where actually Trump does correctly have a, a glimmer of hope because the court um, the court addressed a challenge to the extension of um, the extension of voting in Pennsylvania prior to the vote, and the court didn't decide. The court basically sent it back to Pennsylvania, but that challenge still stands. And what the court did, and again, you know, more detail than most people want, but what the court did, which Josh alludes to, is that they separated out the ballots that were received according to the previous system and the ones according to the new system. And and again, he's completely right. If it is a slim lead, then that may actually make a difference. Uh, if people voted very late, if their votes came in late, and it's not a... Um, 
It's not a partisan issue. It's a question of who has the right to change the rules and when. And so the Supreme Court could actually come back. And John Roberts doesn't like these sorts of votes, as we've seen repeatedly. He will actually vote with 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 the liberal side of the court in order to ensure that the court doesn't get stuck in the middle of politicking. But in some ways, those days are done, right? Because he's no longer the deciding vote. Now the court has a majority with, with Amy Coney Barrett. The conservatives have a majority with Amy Coney Barrett. But, you know, unlike, I would say, the, the liberals on the court, the conservatives on the court are actually conservative. In other words, they're not going to want to interfere here either. So, again, a pathway, a glimmer, perhaps a little more than a glimmer, but yeah. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Thank you. Um, Josh, the, you know, you mentioned um, President Trump is challenging the process um, as unfair. And, you know, I think um, we have seen protests outside of polling booths, you know, just say a bit more about um, what you, your take um, on his comments. And also, do you think that these protests could escalate? Well, his comments are ridiculous. I mean, he's, he's tweeting to stop the count, uh, which isn't even what he's advocating. I mean, they want to stop the count in Pennsylvania, but finish the count in Arizona, uh, which is just farcical. So, you know, while some of the actual legal challenges may have some uh, legal merit, his tweeting is ridiculous and it's dangerous. It is dangerous. I mean, so far the system has, has creaked, but not cracked. And in some ways we were helped by how much Trump and the Democrats telegraphed this. We were prepared in advance. We knew Trump was going to do this and we knew that there might be this blue shift. We'd been talked about in a thousand articles that actually it might look like Trump had won on the night, but actually if you count all the mail-in votes, it could shift. And so we were quite well prepared for this. Democrats messaged very hard on this. And what's been interesting is that key Republican and conservative institutions, whether it be Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, or Fox News, have not gone along with Trump in his more absurd pronouncements. They obviously are giving the challenge the time of day, but they haven't got on board with Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Eric Trump saying, well, this is all kind of Chicago politics and people sort of stealing ballot boxes in the night and whatever. There's no real evidence of that. Uh, and until they find some, they should stop 
alleging it, frankly. And it is dangerous. We haven't seen... You, you're right, there has been there was an incident at a Detroit polling station. There's been some, some unrest in Arizona. It's really worrying, right? I mean, we never want to see that. Um, but I think the fact that we were prepared for it by the media, by the Democrats... We've been expecting this for weeks. We've been expect. I mean, I could have told you six months ago that Trump would tweet something about fraud at, on hourly <laughs> while we were waiting for the result. You just know he's going to, and it almost feels sort of strangely performative on one level. But it is dangerous, and the longer this goes on, I guess the more potential for for unrest um, emerges. So, yeah, we definitely want a result by uh, Danielle said Friday um, in time for my paper and. The, re- the savior of American democracy. So fingers crossed for that. Um, Danielle, is there a real threat that we won't see a peaceful transfer of power if Joe Biden wins? I, I, first of all, I don't think that we should put all of the blame on Trump, uh, disgruntled Trump voters here. Uh, you know, there are riots going on in Portland right now. I can't quite figure out why uh, or what about since it's Oregon, but perhaps it's the fact that didn't they legalize all drug, <laughs> all drug use? Maybe it's just uh, maybe it's just drugs, um, uh, but I don't think I don't think that's very realistic. The the problem is while I think Donald Trump could be enthusiastic about uh, about resisting um, if if there's some question of uh, of the legitimacy of the victory um, uh, of a Biden victory, I don't think there's anyone around him who will enable that. And that includes Vice President Pence. That includes the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. It includes really most of the president's cabinet. Um, and so, you know, that's number one. Number two, if Biden wins, I think Donald Trump, the first thing he's going to do is start thinking about 2024. And he doesn't want to put himself in so precarious a position that he's simply not credible. So... I guess I'm a little bit less worried about that than than people say. Also, you know, Trump is a lot of bluster. He's a lot of Twitter. But when it comes down to what he does, there's just a lot less risk. He's really a lot of bark and not as much bite in terms of in terms of the threats he makes and the and the the emotions he stirs up. Josh, we talked earlier about how the polls um at this point, um, it's a closer race than some of the polls had suggested, many of the polls had suggested. Um, do give us your take on whether Trumpism is the future of the Republican Party, um, regardless of whether he wins or loses? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think he's turned out the highest election population. You know, also 68 million people have voted for him. That's more than voted for Obama in 08. That's a lot of Americans. So yes, I think... Trumpism is here to stay. What that means, quite contingent. It's contingent, obviously, if he, if he, if he wins, then, you know, Trump's Trumpism is here to stay. If he loses, then the process of, of reinterpreting Trump after Trump, um, begins. And there is an interesting cohort of people in position to do that. People like Marco Rubio, who has pivoted somewhat politically in the Trump era. People like Josh Hawley from Missouri, this young senator. People like Tucker Carlson, the Fox News presenter, who's enormously influential. And then there are other sort of more traditional Republicans. Mitch McConnell will obviously still be enormously powerful. You have Nikki Haley down in South Carolina, who's probably more corporate-friendly Republican. So there, are all, there will be a process of working out what is Trumpism without Trump? What happens when you take away the Twitter feed and you take away this 
enormously charismatic figure at the centre, although he will still be on the sidelines, wielding his power, wielding his Twitter feed, uh, possibly starting a TV network, possibly planning to run again. I mean, I don't truly think he would become president again, but I certainly could see him floating it uh, for some period of time. So it's a kind of messy rebuilding process. What they have going for them, the Republican Party, is they will have control of the Senate. They have remade the judiciary. So they still have a lot of power, even if Trump loses. And they're in a position, I guess, to try and triangulate between what Trump has been and what their future will be. And Danielle points out, you know, that they did better than expected among ethnic minorities. There is the the sort of seedlings of a multiracial, more working class coalition there. But it is still a party of plutocrats, of magnates, of people who, um, you know, like very low taxes and free business enterprise. So there are, you know, there are different influences in the party and they will, you know, they will have to sort of work out who they are post-Trump. I think, Danielle, you wanted to come in. Dude, plutocrats? I'm sorry, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, plutocrats, different kinds of plutocrats. I'm sorry, Democrats, all of them, Beyonce, Democrats. I didn't say Democrats weren't plutocrats. All of them, not just, not just, (laughs) not just plutocrats, but the party of the filthy rich and Hollywood you know, no. Yeah, but your your assertion is not uh, is not backed oh, hang up. Hang on, by I didn't I didn't say that Democrats weren't run by Patriots. I'm just saying that there is still a huge talk about like the mining industry, the oil industry, the sort of captains of, of middle American industry in the heartland are still firmly Republican and still pay a lot of the bills. So it's not like there's Patriots on both sides. What about sides. what about Wall Street? Well, yeah, what yeah, about New York? That's just the other side. I mean, again. It's those those labels get you in trouble, though. You know that that's that's why people don't. This is why people don't trust the press. Is because when you, you call a would Republican, would you say Sheldon pie, Adelson? Would you say Sheldon Adelson isn't a plutocrat? I would say I would say Sheldon Adelson would love to be called a plutocrat. The point here well, is that you well. didn't mention the plutocrats <laughs> of the left, and I would say they're well, probably more numerous on the left. <laughs> I agree with you. And that's you why they raised so much one reason they raised so much more money. And but wasted we were it all. About the Republican Party. And wasted it all. <laughs> sure. I could let this go on, but we're short on time. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the Democrats some more. <laughs> Which is I'm Danielle. How significant is a Joe Biden win for the Democrats? Um, and um, some have described Biden as a return, uh, as a vote for the return to normalcy in America. Um do you think that's the case? I think we're really going to have to see. You know, look, what a lot of people fear is that Joe Biden is just the friendly face of the new Democratic Party. And I think it's going to be up to, if he, if he is ultimately crowned the winner, it is going to be up to him, if he's up to it, uh, to actually prove that. Because all things being equal, the Democratic Party is not Joe Biden's Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is much more the party of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It's much more the party of the elites than it is the party of, you know, the the grassroots, at least in my perception. Um, And... So it's going to be an uphill, an uphill battle. I think, you know, again, a lot of his, if, if Biden is, is ultimately the victor, who he chooses for his cabinet, 
who he, um, how he chooses to govern, what he embraces as as appropriate policies. You know, the, his his plans were very far left, but he can't execute them with a Republican Senate. Will that help him? Will that further isolate him? You know, I don't know. I really don't. The only thing I can say is that is that it will be in for many many people uh, a welcome return to just a little bit less drama in American politics, and that I do feel sure of. Thank you, Dan. Now, final question to you, Josh.、Um, what does this election mean for the rest of the world? <laughs> Could we see a shift away from America first、um, and return? Uh, to the United States, playing a more active role in the international system. What does it mean for democracy? So, just a really small question to finish our, you know, discussion.、Mm. Well, obviously, yeah, it depends who wins. If we if we see if Trump wins, then we will have more of the same on foreign policy,、um, and we know what that is: tough on Iran,、uh, adversarial towards China.、Um, if Biden wins, then You know, we, they've laid out a lot of what they want to do. They want to, or at least conceptually, they want to rebuild alliances. They say they possibly want to re-enter the Iran deal, although they might have a tricky job doing that.、Mm-hmm. They want to focus on climate change. They want to re-enter the Paris Climate Accords. They will do that, and they want to refocus on Europe. They want to, you know, rebuild relations with Germany and the EU, and they will probably remain quite adversarial towards China because that has been a Really, a big shift across Washington, you know, across American foreign policy in recent years, somewhat precipitated by Trump.、Um, but I don't think they will be as adversarial. They will look for different ways to to manage China.、Um, and there are still some sort of Obama era restorationists、uh, in the Biden camp that、uh, maybe don't maybe want to work with China a little bit more. They see China as someone they need to work with on climate change, for example.、Um, So, and foreign policy, you know, if he, if he doesn't, if he's president Biden and he doesn't have the republic and he doesn't have the Senate, then foreign policy is pretty one of the only areas he can do anything.、Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the Middle East, the peace deals that have been signed between Israel and some of its neighbours,、um, which are a Trump era achievement. I, I don't know that they will necessarily support more of that. So, there's sort of an interesting foreign policy is going to be an interesting area. I think a lot of people will. Initially, breathe a sigh of relief because Trump's just so stressful, but then perhaps realise that actually <laughs> the world will remain knotty and complex, and Biden may not have that many solutions for it. All right, Danielle. Same final question to you:、um, What does this election mean for America's role in the world and democracy, and etc., etc., etc.? Well, I think it just means that our democracy works. And what does it mean for foreign policy?、Um, a lot will remain the same. I think,、uh, as Josh said correctly,、um, on Iran, you know, I think again that depends. The Iranians have to play ball. They've got their own election next year, and、uh, that I think is going to make it difficult for them to play ball right now. So we'll have to see.、Uh, as much as、uh, some of the figures, the sort of Obama era retreads lurking in Biden's circle, are desperate to、uh, rekindle their friendship with their Iranian buddies. It might be a little tough、um, on China, Russia. You know, all I think we really can expect. So you know, I one th- I a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing is we can expect a change in style. You know, less rudeness. 
what my, my former boss used to call making the world safe for cocktail parties. There's going to be a lot more comfortable cocktail parties in a Biden era and a Biden foreign policy. The things that I worry about are that, contrary to what many people think, the Trump administration has actually been really, really solid on a lot of human rights, human freedom issues. Okay? Gone after the Chinese on the Uyghurs, gone after them on Hong Kong, gone after the Russians on their, uh, on their activities, particularly in Europe, but also in their near abroad. Something that the Obama administration was terrible about frankly. So I worry that we're not going to be as forthright in defense of in defense of those values, which I know sounds funny, but that actually is the reality. And so, you know, when Josh says something like, yeah, you know, it's been a real era of peace in the Middle East under Trump, but I'm not sure that's going to continue under Biden. That's actually bad news. But on the whole, I think we shouldn't expect any real seismic changes in foreign policy. And yeah, that's not not to the bad. Thank you both very much. We're out of time. Um, it's been a fantastic discussion. And I think I'm going to take away one phrase in particular, making the world safer for cocktail parties. I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be a priority, along with Josh's column uh, for this week's Sunday Times. I mean, clearly, these are, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, you two have been absolutely Good. brilliant. Danielle Pletka and Josh Glancy. What a wonderful discussion. And thank you all very much for tuning in uh, to this Intelligence Squared podcast. Um, I'm Linda Yu, and we wish you a very good day as we now await the outcome of the U.S. election. And of course, I'd be remiss if I just didn't point you to the IntelligenceSquared.com website for more podcasts and terrific events. Thank you all. Ah, mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.